extend a welcome to everybody here this morning, visitors, all that are gathered. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. As we look at his revealing to us. You can turn to Revelation. Um, I'm not sure how many were here last time I preached, but starting in on studying and preaching from the book of Revelation, and it's hard to know where to start and stop in some of these. I have chosen this morning to look at chapter 2 and chapter 3. It is all the churches. Um, could probably have a sermon on each of the churches in themselves to really, you know, the, the physical location, the background, the culture and everything might, might make a little more sense, but we wouldn't get to the end of Revelation if we would do that. And so um, I am uh, going to ask the ushers to come forward. I have a handout again to, uh, in some ways, it'll speed some things up just so I don't have to go over as much. Um, I don't know if there's two of you that mind handing these out. Um, just gives a uh, quick overview of all the churches. And as you know, last time I had one with just some things in general of Revelation. Um, I still have a few of those if you need one, but... I just want to back up to chapter 1 there at the end, refresh our mind. Chapter 1, verse 20, says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. I'm not sure how long it will take for me to read chapter 2 and 3, but I'm going to do that. It will put all the churches in our mind as we hear them. There's some repetition that takes place, and so if you would uh, please follow along, it might, it might take a little bit of time, but I'm putting all the churches together. There, there's differences in each one, but there is seven churches pulled from the current uh, situation back then, uh, they were they were real churches, and nobody really knows why uh, there wasn't other churches picked. As you see on the map, they form a little bit of a circle uh, right in that same area, and I don't know if there's much significance to that, but these are the ones that are given to us, and so we're going to read about them as we have what's given here. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Revelation chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou, thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. 
I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, these things saith the Son of God, whose, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden." But that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation chapter 3. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, 
but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to worship before my feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginnings, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, <clears throat> I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thank you for your patience as we read the scripture, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. So the layout, as we read through those seven churches, addressed with descriptions of who Jesus himself is, the characteristics there, and we read them. And I'm not going to look at them specifically. Followed by either good things, compliments, or praises that they were doing. And after that, then we had concerns or warnings or rebukes. That's something they were doing wrong in these churches. And then following that, you had promises given. So I'm not going to zero in on each verse going through. There would be a lot to study. But as we go through Revelation, just kind of wanted to get a general overview of the churches uh, is what, what we have here given. And as I read that two chapters, you probably picked up on a couple things that repeat. And one is, it starts out to the angel or unto the angel of the church in 
whatever the place was. And I thought about that phrase for probably two weeks, and I still don't comprehend that. The word angel is used lots of different ways. And basically, every time angel is used, it's used as a messenger. And so, as it begins, it says, you could just put unto the messenger of the church of Ephesus. And it kind of comes down to it could either be us as leaders, as messengers bringing things to the church, or as someone from God that brings things to the church, as a messenger from God, um, as we think of in it as, you know, as given as angel. I don't know which way that really is, and it doesn't really matter, but that's the wording that's given. Either way, we received it. It's given here. It's written. The next phrase that is used a lot is, I know thy works. And those works are either good or bad. It just uses the phrase, I know thy works. Another word used towards the end of each time right with the promises is the word overcome. That is a word for victory. And one, you, uh, to those that overcome, it gives in each of the churches promises. Uh, and that's what we need as we go through life. The promises of Jesus can be held um, without fear of compromise. And the last phrase that I found is, uh, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Um, and so, uh, I'm, I think I have some more to comment later on that. But let's just get an overview of these churches. And you have your paper there. And just very basic... I put down strength and weakness, just instead of trying to pull them out of each of the sections in your, in your Bible. Uh, you have Ephesus that was patient and did not tolerate evil, and they were, had perseverance, but they also had weakness that they left thy first love. And I just went back up. If you can't figure out this map, just go to the back of your Bible and find a bigger map that would show these, you know, where it is on the, in a bigger, uh, what would you say, on a bigger scale. Um, but I wanted to uh, just zero in a little bit where these churches are. And notice also where the Isle of Patmos is there. It's out in the sea a little bit. Um, just to help us see where that is. Smyrna. It says the strength, uh, they're rich in the sight of God. We know they were poor, but they were rich in the sight of God. And the weakness says not really any. There wasn't necessarily any um, warnings or rebukes given to this church. They were given encouragement because of they were experiencing suffering and tribulation and some difficulties in, in where they lived there. And you turn your paper over, you have uh, the rest of the churches on the back. Pergamos. There's a strength there. It says living where Satan has his throne. Now that sounds a little not so much of a strength. And the reason that that's a strength is, is that they were able to live where Satan's presence was so heavily uh, concentrated in the idol worship. The, all these gods that they would put together in the, you know, uh, in the early church there with the countries around and there was, you know, intense idol worship, and they lived right in the midst of that. Now, it takes strength to do that, but it also could be uh, taken as a weakness, which, it, which is not listed as a weakness, but the fact that they chose to live in such an evil place. Um, you could kind of take it both ways, but there really doesn't have... Uh, 
much for strength. The other one says holding fast to the name of Jesus. Obviously, if you lived in the midst of idol worship, you were one or the other. You, 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 uh, and there was. There was some that held fast to the name of Jesus. Weakness was that some were holding to the doctrine of Balaam and also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Thyatira, we see um, a strength of good works, uh, charity, faith, patience, doing more now than at first. The weakness was uh, called out there about a woman named Jezebel or uh, it says that because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, not necessarily that that was her name, but it was a woman similar. They think if you try to understand uh, what what they're writing here, but there was a um, similarities in which... It says, which calleth herself a prophetess and teaches to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Um, they allowed that in the church there at Thyatira. Um, not that all were in favor of it, but it was there in their, in their midst. Sardis, it says, there's a few names that have not defiled their garments. Um, for strength there, it's wasn't a whole lot. Uh, weakness says, have not, have not found thy works perfect or complete before God. They were, I think Sardis was known as a lazy church. They wouldn't uh, finish what they knew to do. Philadelphia, a strength, kept the word of my patience, not denied my name. And you see weakness there, it says not really any. Philadelphia is, I think, the only church that didn't have any, any weaknesses. Um, there's not much given uh, as far as faults or wrongdoings for the Church of Philadelphia. And then Laodicea, we know, it says strength, not really any. But the weakness was they were the lukewarm church, the spiritually poor church. They were naked and blind, even though they couldn't, couldn't tell that. And so that is uh, <clears throat> all the churches given there. And there's not too much, as I look through this, that we wouldn't understand except a few things. A reoccurring theme that keeps coming through these is you hear the word Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam, and you hear of idols and uh, fornication or sexual immorality. That's kind of stated through here. And that's what I just want to zero in just a little bit in the uh, understanding some of those doctrines or what what they're meaning when they say that um, and that's pretty much all for for studying in on words there's a lot of word studies you could do and and increase the meaning of a lot but just in general Nicolaitans was uh, it means destruction of the people and it was a belief or teaching that the spirit was more important than the laws of the flesh and so you could they accepted lawlessness such as uh, fornication or sexual immorality in general, and eating of things sacrificed to idols because that was just things that you'd done in the flesh. And the spirit's what really counted. And there's a couple different ways and views you could, you could take that through, but the one resource I had pointed out that in today's setting, that could be turned into what we know as Calvinism, what we have today. Obviously, we don't have teaching local that is a doctrine of this Nicolaitans, but we have uh, it among us today that if we take the teaching that the, the flesh doesn't matter, uh, that you can just do what you want, and it's the Spirit, God has grace, He covers everything, that is what we would deal with today. And they had it back then. The once saved, always saved, no matter what you do, God will be okay with it. Um, is still among us today, and, and, it, and it was back then as well. I'll give you just a rumor in some of the resources I read as to what extent this was taking place. So there was a man named Nicholas, which was also one of the deacons ordained. They do not think that that was who this was. They think that this Nicolaitans was from another person. But rumor or tradition would have it that um, the, uh, 
the wife of this person was held uh, that she was uh, beautiful in the eyes of men. And so Nicholas, as a husband, in order to keep the people from being jealous, let her go to whoever man she wanted to avoid jealousy. Now that's warped, that's twisted. We wouldn't think of doing something such today. But it's the mindset that kept pulling these people into things, and they would justify it. You got the flesh and you got the spirit, and they they were dealing with these things that, well, in order to satisfy one, we'll do the other, and there was even what they called, a term I don't know, community of women. Just didn't matter. When it talks about fornication, that is, at least, and I didn't check specifically here, but a lot of times that has to do with anything across the realm of sexual immorality. So let's go to the doctrine of Balaam. <clears throat> As you know, Balaam taught Balak, king of Moab, to corrupt the Israelites by seducing the Israelites to marry the idol-worshipping women from Moab. He was called to curse them. The Lord said, you cannot curse my people, and he could only bless them. But right through the ending of it, he told the king of Moab, if you just get the women to uh, intermarry with the Israelites, you will be able to overcome and conquer them. Because when you marry a foreign wife or woman, she will bring her worship experience from the culture that she is. She will bring that into the home that the person marries. And that will bring idolatry into the Israelites and bring downfall to them. And we know that's what happened as the Israelites did intermarry against God's command. They married foreign uh, women, the other cultures. And so there again you see the idolatry coming through. Probably the term that fits uh, in all these things of, um, you know, letting the flesh take over more than, than what the spirit is and... We do not believe in that. But the last one here, um, and I'm alluded to it a little bit, the woman Jezebel. All I have down here is the so-called prophetess who led in idol worship and immorality, as we know from the Old Testament. So all three of these things can be put under one word. It's a new word for me. I don't know if anyone would have heard it here before or not, but I punched it in the dictionary. And it's antinomianism. Big word. I know you don't like big words. But it means, and this is straight from the dictionary, one who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. That is a word right out of our dictionary. Never had heard of it before. I thought that really summed it up good. You hold that under the gospel dispensation of grace, that you know God gave us what we need to be upright and pure before Him. You turn around and state that the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is all that's necessary for salvation. And these doctrines all Follow that. They go through with that. That the moral law doesn't matter. The God's law, His commandments of physical things here on earth, <clears throat> they, they don't recognize, they don't keep. So question, I don't have a whole lot more. I have just a few of my own uh, thoughts and things out of these verses here. All these churches... And the one question is, how can these groups of people be called churches while doing such evil things? 
We wouldn't think of worshiping idols. We wouldn't think of bowing down to a, a stone god, a metal, a, an idol, a, a figure. You take, let's just say the back half of the church wants to do something on their own, the front church. How can you have those things taking place in the same church? I don't know. All I know was it's different culture. It was, and I take it as these things were actually happening back then. In the same church, these things were taking place. And another question I had was, uh, along with that, then uh, that should justify all the church splits today because one half says we're going to do this, the other half says no, we're not, then zoom, we have a church split. I don't find anything much of church splits in this revelation. I don't know if that's any significance or not. But the fact is that in these churches, it's stated that the people were together, but they were doing some things wrong. They were doing some things right, but it was the church. And I don't have much to add about that. Just some what's going, uh, had went through my mind on how God was looking, the message that he's sending to these churches and what these churches actually were. So now, switching gears a little bit, uh, just real quick, like I thought it was interesting, to ask you, which church do you go to? Maybe you go to Ephesus, and you left your first love. And the one, the one uh, resource, too, I read, it said you could have a, in today's, you know, his, his modern setting and thinking, you know, you could have a, uh, a member from the Ephesian church or Ephesus here attending Pergamos. Like, you know, you could mix them, mix them up a little bit because we do. We got all the scenarios today. It's not like um, one church only has one major problem. No, it's, it's all the members, all the men, women, the whole uh, body of, we, we each have different things. But, uh, Maybe you're struggling with that you left your first love. And I want to say that two years ago, as a church, we started here. And I wonder if you still have the same emotions is a little bit not a good word, but that first morning when we gathered together. Where did that go? Or do you still have that when you come here? I think we had prayer before the service. There was something that was starting, stirring within our hearts and minds as we met together as a church. And one year goes by, and now two years go by. What happened to it? Maybe it is still here. Churches, things change. You, you know, we can't be identical all life long. You know, and, and that consistent. But that's what happened here. This church lost out. And through progression, change came about. Or maybe you think you uh, attend Smyrna, which is um, the poor church. Maybe you feel like you're the poorest one here at church. Just remember that God says you're rich. You don't have to worry about earthly things. He's, God said it right in the in there about it's in uh, like brackets says, but thou art rich, and God can see that, even though you may feel you're the financially the poorest one here at church. That doesn't matter. Strive to be rich in God's sight. And they're also facing persecution in Smyrna. And persecution is down through all these, and it's hard to relate to that. Uh, because we don't quite face it so much. So you get to Pergamos here. It says about the one, you know, living right in the middle where Satan was. And it talks about the seat of Satan. And that just simply means his throne or where he was ruling. Just that it, it, he dominated that area. And at times we feel like that, where there's so much evil around us. And you can't go anywhere. You feel like you're all alone with that. It says, hold fast to his name. And, of course, it gives a promise and things later on, you know, for Pergamos. Or maybe you think you go to Thyatira. A little more of a 
practical idea here of Thyatira is, is this woman Jezebel. And it's hard to know the effects that that had on the church. If she was just doing her own little thing and the rest of the church was able to go, but it was just kind of hanging around her, or if that uh, influence filtrated across the church in the fact that the women step out of bounds in their role as a submissive wife or follower of the church and do not allow the men to be leaders. And it's possible that when the women press too much to try to be the leader, that the man can't even do it. Ahab, was his hands were tied. What could he have done with his wife Jezebel? Bringing all the servants to Baal to worship, just, he, he couldn't do a thing. He was basically done. And I hope you don't feel like you live in a church like that. And I don't think we do. But it's more than just church. And I want to encourage men as leaders to confront, if you're married, to confront your wife with the responsibility that God has given you to be a leader. The wife cannot argue with that. And the wife would need to fall back and say, this is the role that God has for me. To accept and to give opportunity for the husband or for the men to lead. That can be in family, can be in work, can be in church. And the Lord searches the minds and the hearts of men. That, that's written right after that there in Thyatira. And that is so true that as we look at things around us, we can't tell what's in the heart and minds of other people. But God can look down and He can see what's in the heart and minds of each of us. And we want to identify with what He would want. Church at Sardis, maybe you go there, it's a dead church. Maybe you think this church just is pretty boring. There's no spiritual life here. We're lazy, not doing anything. Um, Sardis is a little bit of a... uh, There's not much there with it. I don't think there's... uh, It basically um, says about, there's a few that have not defiled their garments. They shall walk uh, with me in white, for they are worthy. But uh, that is Sardis. Or maybe you think we have a church like Philadelphia. We have a door of opportunity, as it says here, about a door that opened. And it talks about a little strength. It could have been a little church. Um, It could have been just a fire that's starting. But I can identify with a door of opportunity as to what the Lord would have for us with our church. And I hope that you feel you're part of our church, that we could be like Church of Philadelphia. We don't really have any weaknesses. Now that I don't know about. Each of you would know if we do or not. But the strength of keeping the word of patience, it's keeping the commands to persevere and not denying his name, that would be uh, one I hope you feel like you're part of. Laodicea is the last one. I don't know if you think you're part of that church or not, but it's a lukewarm church. It's not recognizing your poor spiritual condition. So quick here at the end, just a couple more things that I, I just want to pull out here. The list could go on and on. But the question was, how can you tell if a church or if the church is moving away from God or toward God? And the reason that came up is, is because on this chart, and I know you won't be around to witness it, each of these churches today that are listed on here, there is no evidence of any Christian church there. If you go to that country today, in each of those towns, they got renamed. There is no evidence in any of them in today that there's any Christian church there. How did it get there? So how do you know what direction we're going? And obviously that's years. I understand that. 
How do you know if a church is moving away from God or moving toward God? Just real quick, by the works that the church does. This book talked about, I know thy works. And if you were to say that you can tell if a church is moving toward God or away from God by looking at the works, that is not a good indicator. A church can do works, good or bad, but that doesn't necessarily tell that the direction that they're going. It could give indications, but it doesn't mean. If our church is doing works that we think God would be approved of and look good, does that mean we're moving toward God? You can't really tell by the works of a church um, what direction they're going. Yes, obviously there's indicators, but not necessarily in the way that it's shown here. It just simply says, God knows your works. That's all it says. I think one way that you can tell if a church is moving away from God or toward God is by the choices that the people make. And I mean spiritual choices. There's lots of physical choices you can make in life, but these are spiritual choices. And when I mean spiritual choices, it comes down to this word overcome. If a church, if the people within a church are not overcoming in their personal life, they are moving away from God. Now that sounds pretty flat and simple, and it is. But I want to ask you, when is the last time you had victory in your Christian life? I asked myself that. There can be small things, there can be big things. But when is the last time that you said, I have overcome this. At least for right now, I overcame and I'm living in victory. That is a church that is headed towards God. Here is the definition that I have for victory. You need to know what the battle was about and that it took the power of God in your life to overcome it and that you continue to overcome it. If that's not taking place in the church, the church is going away from God. So what are we overcoming? Could be broadened up a little bit to all these settings were faced with severe persecution and so government leaders and the authorities around them were like, if we can, and it wouldn't be hard at all to, to, to picture that mindset of overcoming that every day in, day out, that you are facing persecution because of the authorities that are given around. Like, if you could overcome that, that to me would be, you know, what one could be here. But, and that's why I put like government leaders or the, the authorities. But, the ones that were persecuting the church. And it could be that. But in, in under that or with that, I see the battle as uh, between the flesh and the spirit. And that could also take place, of course, obviously with, with persecution. And so that is where we wrestle with and we struggle with. And if you are not living in victory, you are not part of a church if you want to say you might be part of the local church but you're not part of the church and pure bride of Jesus Christ that is striving to move closer to him and I have uh, just a note written down here that I have to write it down so I keep it because if I try it again it doesn't come out right you know so I wrote down here the direction that the local church goes is a result of the choices that each person makes whether good or bad. If all of you choose to do something bad, that's the way that this local church is going to go. If all of you choose to do good, to overcome, to be victors, that's the way the church is going to go. Okay, so lastly here, what does our church need today? That's just a very fun question to ask. You know, it's like, what's the church need today? 
especially as we look at these churches they're given here in Revelation what did they you know what did they what did they have and, and as we look where we are today what do we need well obviously this is going to shift all to today's setting so does our church need uh, just a couple things came to my mind do you think more church standards would help or maybe you think less church standards would help I just had to put this one down. Maybe we need better preachers. That would that would get the church going. I'm glad we have Mike and Jay to take care of that. I'm thankful for the preachers we have here. Or like we said, how many times do we need persecution? Does the church need perse- persecution? Is that what the need is today? And I don't want to stir the fire up, but I had to think, as we think of uh, church services, um, we voted, you know, it'd be uh, to go on our own for Sunday evening services, um, but just in general, do you think more church services? Is that going to, is that going to be what the church needs today? Think less church service? Sure, there's good and church services we know that but I have one here that comes right from the those were mine by the way just uh, you know writing stuff down what we need today in our church and what I need in my life today is what I read to you seven times from each of these churches and if you know where I'm headed it's the fact that each of you have two ears. No, all you need is one. It says, he that hath an ear. All you need is one. I don't think there's anybody who's just one ear. But he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We need, now let me back up. Do we need more of his Spirit giving guidance in our lives? That's a little bit of a tricky one. Think that through. Do we need more of His Spirit in our lives? No, we have it. We have His Spirit. And I realized that we thought about this, the way this verse says about that we need to hear what the Spirit saith. And it's always me, of course, with, with deaf children that have that we hear. This just says that we need to listen to what the Spirit says. And so when not any fault to anybody else but when I pray that God's spirit would come upon us that God's spirit would be here that's not really gaining anything we came already filled with the spirit we don't need to pray and say Lord may your spirit just come upon us and be with us as a Christian as a believer you have his spirit inside of you and I know it's a little you want to say one of those things you get irked about I know you could but we don't our church today doesn't need more of his spirit it needs the people to listen to his spirit we have the Holy Spirit in us and we need all we need to do is to hear and then to do what the spirit is saying and what the spirit is asking and when I I, I tremble at that because there's flesh in me that says, am I really willing to pray and say, Lord, can I hear and do what your spirit is telling me to do? And we face that already. You know what Jonah did. You know what different people did when they were given a clear command. And the flesh overtook and said, I can't. It's too much. Satan is bringing upon you a spirit of fear. God's not going to ask you to do more than you can't do. He knows the power that's inside of you that can give you the strength to do it. All you need to be is a willing person to do it. It's so simple and yet so hard as we battle the flesh. But what the church needs today is people that are listening to the Spirit of God. And that's pretty well the 
conclusion. It's, it says it at the end of each one. It says what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's, you know, each time it says that and puts it in the plural, I don't see any significance of that because it's for all. But that to me is, and there could be others as well, but that we would listen to what the Spirit's saying. So what can we learn from the seven churches? Just remember in conclusion here that God walks in the midst of His candlesticks. As we read there in Revelation 2.1, it says, uh, Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's His church. I know time's up, but I keep remembering things. Do you know the Old Testament, the, the candlestick, that the, they had to put the oil, oil in and, and make it burn there in the tabernacle? God has a way of just saying, those are my candlesticks, and I walk among those. And it talked also about removing one of them. And we don't want that. But as we talked about the Spirit, those candlesticks, the, the, the type and the shadow is that the oil that's put in them is the Holy Spirit that is in those churches that creates the fire and that burns. And God just walks in the midst of those receiving honor and glory, hopefully, because of the way his churches are uh, doing things and being uh, what churches are supposed to be. I also have down here that he knows our works. I don't have anything to add to that. It simply just says, I know thy works. God knows your heart and he knows your mind, whether good or bad. And then in the end here, don't forget the promises that are given. And if you want something to do, just read those promises. They're at the end of every church, and there's numerous ones. And as we get to more of Revelation and the <clears throat> things to come, <clears throat> that, the, that I believe with all my heart that those promises will be fulfilled. And you and I want to be part of those promises. There's many of them. They are there for us. And may we take hold of them as we go through our days and weeks to try and to strive to live with the Spirit of God in our life doing what He would want us to. I think at this time we'll just stand for prayer. I um, want to read the benediction. You may stand. <clears throat>